Okay. Yeah. In case, in case you haven't figured it out, we, we are starting a uh, brand new series today, and uh, we're calling it Pirates. And Pirates is all about treasure, and our treasure, your treasure, my treasure, our stuff, and uh, what we do with our stuff. And in this journey, somewhere along the way, we're going to talk about money. And uh, before you get up and go, all right, I'm out of here for the next six weeks, um, here's what I'm just going to ask. Would you, would you, would you, would you, would you consider just going on the journey? Just having the conversation together for the next few weeks? Because if you and I were really honest, here's what we know. Probably the most challenging times in my life, probably the greatest struggles that I've ever had, probably the moments in which I have doubted God the most, if I were honest, were linked to money. To stuff. You know, they tell us that the vast majority of marriages that fail don't fail over infidelity, don't fail because it's not a good match. They fail over the discussion of money and stuff. Chances are in your life, the moments in which you have doubted God the most, chances are the moments in which you and God have argued the most have revolved around this issue of money. So here's all I'm asking. Would you, could you, would you consider having the conversation? You don't have to agree. You don't, you don't have to say just because Lynn said it, it's right. All I'm asking is, would you have the conversation? Because what if? What if you're in my relationship with God could be turned around? Well, what if your marriage could be more peaceful and in a healthier place? What if what you and I have been thinking about on this topic has actually gotten us derailed in our lives. So we're going to spend about the next six weeks just talking about treasure, stuff, and what place should it hold in our life, how should we respond, how should we be thinking about it, our stuff together. So some of you, when you came in this morning, you had a little Chinese finger handcuff thing you got. Did you guys get that? Who's got one that can toss me real quick? It's all right. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, thank you. All right, so here we go. I remember definitively in my life the first time my dad brought me one of these things. Gave it to me and said, hey, son, stick your fingers in. And you know what happened next. And in and, and, and absolute terror and fear. My dad then said to me, Len, the only way you're going to get your fingers out is push in. To which I said to him, do I look that stupid? You're the one that got my fingers in here in the first place. And dad said, no, 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 no. Honestly, trust me in this. The only way you get out of this is push in. And then it'll release. And you can get your finger out. Okay? <laughs> Absolutely the opposite of what you and I would naturally consider. Absolutely counterintuitive to what you and I would want to do in that moment. Here's why we gave you this. As you and I have this discussion for the next six weeks, here's what I can promise you, promise you, promise you, even before we begin. That what we are going to say to each other, what we are going to discover that God says about our stuff, our possessions, our money, is absolutely counterintuitive to everything your heart says. That, that you will desperately want to pull away, and God will say, no, 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 push in. 
And if you and I would consider that how we've done it till now is part of why it's been a struggle up till now, why this has been a place of ache and hurt, some of us have Christian lives that are absolutely stalled over this very topic. Some of us have marriages that are in chaos over this very, that what we thought was right was wrong, and God's going to invite you and I to push in and find freedom for the first time on this topic in our life. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Would you, could you, would you stick this little thing somewhere prominent in your life? Stick it by your sink where you get ready in the morning, put it on the dashboard of your car, just somewhere so that each time you see it, it reminds your heart to say, look, look, I'm in the midst of a conversation with God right now, and I'm already warning my heart that what he's going to ask me is going to seem peculiar. It, it, it's going it's to cause fear and concern for my heart, and yet his invitation is going to be push in and find freedom in this area of your life. So would you, could you put it somewhere to remind your heart for the next five weeks? Could you do that? Okay, so there's that. All right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to start at the very beginning. And when we got ready to do this series, we were thinking pirates, and we kind of took the whole idea, we took the whole theme kind of out of the whole uh, Capital One campaign. Have you guys seen that? You know, all these barbarians come rushing at this guy or this gal, and at the very last minute when they're ready to attack and inflict on them, they pull out their Capital One card. And of course, that wards off all the barbarians because it's so smart to have a card with 22% interest on it and, you know, <laughs> slays the barbarians. And so we said, okay, okay, let's, let's, let's spend this time talking about the pirates that would come to steal our treasure. And, and what would it take to ward off the pirates? And so we're going to start today with pirate number one, which is this, ownership. Ownership. Who really owns my stuff? And guys, this is confusing for us. This is, we struggle with this because if the truth be known... Here's what we would say. Look, I, I, get, I, get, I, get, I get that God provides, but I sure had to work pretty hard to get it. And, and so, you know, kind of at the end of the day, I mean, you know, it's kind of mine, right? We pull what I call a Jimmy Stewart on God. Because there's an old movie out, it's called uh, Shenandoah, and, and it's, just, it's a movie that, that stars Jimmy Stewart, and he's a father of a family right about the time of the Civil War, and Somehow his uh, wife has passed away, and he is now left to raise this rather large family. And he promised his wife on, his de on her deathbed, I I'll raise these boys, and these I'll raise them up to be good Christians, to do the right thing. And this scene we're about to take a look at is Jimmy Stewart sitting with his family, having prayer. Okay, and, and you'll get what I mean when you see it. So here we go. Jimmy Stewart, Shenandoah. What I do? Well, it's what you haven't done, boy. A man eats with his hat on is going nowhere in a hurry. Now, your mother wanted all of you raised as good Christians, and I might not be able to do that thorny job as well as she could, but I can do a little something about your manners. Now, shall we? Lord, we cleared this land, 
we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat, amen. See, we, we've all pulled Jimmy Stewart, right? Matter of fact, if you were to go to your Bibles, Jimmy Stewart in the Bible would be a guy by the name of Abraham. Uh, you could call him Abraham Stewart. And uh, his story is in Genesis chapter 22. So that's where we're going to land today, Genesis chapter 22. If you're not familiar, first book of the Bible. This story is perhaps one of the most confusing, uh, most misunderstood stories in all of Scripture. And yet you and I are going to dig in because it answers so many questions about ownership. Genesis chapter 22. Let me read this to you. It's Genesis chapter 22. We'll start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Sometime later, God, next word, tested. See, that's, that's God's way of saying, hey, we're going to have a major conversation here. See, I've got, I've got some serious questions, Abraham, and I need to know that you've got the right answers. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here am I, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw a place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he carried him, he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father? Yes, son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This boy ain't no dummy. Right question. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. You realize this whole story hinges on whether or not Abraham believes his response. That the test that's about to happen in this moment is, Abraham, do you really believe what you just told Isaac? Because, you ready for this? You haven't believed that all your life. See, to get this moment, because I, I, this is a weird moment, right? I mean, God just asked Abraham to kill his own son. I mean, we're talking human sacrifice here. I mean, this, this is a very strange moment, never replicated as best I can tell again in Scripture. And you and I are left to go, whoa, 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 what's going on? And it's hard to get if you and I don't understand the conversation, you ready? That God has been having all of Abraham's life 
See, Abraham at this point is about 115, minimum 115 years old. And throughout his entire lifetime, God has been trying to have this conversation with, with Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Who, who, who really owns your stuff? And up until this moment, Abraham's answer has been simple. Well, God, I, I, I get it. I get, I get you kind of provided it, but... It's only here because of the sweat of my brow. I mean, it's only here because I'm so talented. It's only here because I walked behind the mule as we plowed the land. It's only here because me and mine went out and harvested it. And, and so, okay, okay, thank you. But we really did it. So it's really mine, right? To get the gist, you go back, and we're not going to turn there, but... First moment, first time God tries to have this conversation with Abraham is really in Genesis chapter 16. And, and Abraham's response in that moment is basically this. Look, look, look. If I'm going to have, if I'm going to get it, it's up to me to provide. It's up to me to get it done. At the end of the day, providing is all about me and my sufficiency. Here's the story. Some of you that grew up in Sunday school all your lives, the story will be fairly familiar. But here's what's happened. Abraham is well into years. His wife, Sarah, is also old. And Sarah, through the entirety of their marriage, has been barren. She's not been able to give Abraham a single child. And now, if that's not enough, she is so far past any childbearing years. And in the midst of that moment, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you an amazing nation you're going to have a son, and out of that son is going to come more children, more offspring than you'll ever be able to count. And after God gives the promise, guess what he does? Nothing. Nothing. And Abraham starts to get antsy, and Sarah begins to go, and so they think, well, no, 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 if, if, I get that God's got great intentions, but, 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 if, but if this is going to happen, maybe we have to provide for ourselves. Maybe, maybe we got to get this done. And so Sarah comes up with a plan. She comes up with a scheme, and she says, look, 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 God technically didn't say that the child was going to be from me, just from you. So what if, what if, what if I were to give you my servant girl? You could sleep with her, and you could have a child by her, and we could help God provide wouldn't that be wonderful? And, and Abraham thought about it for a few minutes, looked over at the servant girl, <laughs> said, I think that's a great plan, Sarah. <laughs> wow. I, I bet you God's impressed, huh? And so Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant girl. A child is born. A son is born. Anybody want to guess what happens next? Man, jealousy with a capital J. See, all of a sudden, Abraham's kind of spending some time with Hagar, the servant girl, and his son, Ishmael. Sarah's over there going, hey, what am I? Pretty soon, it becomes so tense, so tough, so horrible within the house that Sarah finally comes to Abraham and says, look, I, I'm just, I'm done with this. You get that woman, you get that child out of our house. And Hagar and Ishmael, the servant girl and her son by Abraham, are sent away. 
disaster. Some of you that know your Bible history well know this. The son of Hagar, Ishmael, you ready? The son of providing for myself becomes the father of the Arab nations. The nations that will then war with, fight with the son that will be born to Sarah and Abraham, named Isaac, the son of promise. And not just for then, but till this day, you and I sit and wonder and go, what is it? Why, why is there so much animosity? Why is there so much? You realize it goes all the way back to a man who said, God doesn't seem to be able to provide. I better do this for myself. If it's ever going to get done, I better do it. And war and hatred has ensued ever since. I guarantee you, some, some of the most painful decisions of your life, some of the biggest regrets that you've ever had financially have come from moments in which you said, oh my, oh my, it looks as if God is not providing. I had better provide for myself. Contrast this, contrast this way of thinking with David the king. Go with me in your Bibles. It's going to be a little bit to the right in your Bible. It's in 1 Chronicles. You're going to run into 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and you'll get to this 1 Chronicles. Let me, as you're going there and trying to find it, let me, let me give you the background. David is king of Israel. David, you ready for this? Has tons of stuff. Matter of fact, he's amazingly rich and and he's in the process of trying to do a fundraiser for the temple trying to get everybody to give and, and contribute to the temple now what God has said to him is look David you're, you're not going to be able to build the temple because you've been a man of blood we all know that he murdered Uriah and God says so I can't have you build the temple for me your son Solomon's going to do that someday but I will let you do the preparation I'll let you get all the funds all the gold all the stuff together and when they go to the people and when they put the plea out, there comes in more than anyone could have ever imagined. They have more than enough to build the temple and then have some left over. And in that moment of dedication of that temple, here's what David says about the stuff. It's First Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Get the next line. For everything in heaven and in earth is yours. No, no, whoa, whoa, David, David, no, no, no. I worked for that. I sweated for it. You, you don't know what I had to do to get my college degree to qualify for the job. You don't know how many late nights I worked to get that promotion. You don't know how often I sweated over my investments. No, 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 that's mine. 
Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise to your name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. How does David get this? I don't know. Maybe it's because as he sits on his throne, he looks down in his hand and sees a callus from a shepherd's staff. And he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows. The only way shepherds get to be king is when God intervenes. Maybe he remembers being a teenager and walking out onto a field where all the men are trembling behind him and picking up a stone that was less a weapon and more a prayer and throwing only one stone, having it land perfectly and strike a killing blow and knowing deep within his teenage heart that that was not about skill. It was about the hand of God directing and maybe King David can say, I get it. I get that there is nothing I touch, there is nothing I see, there is nothing I possess that didn't come from your hand in my life. See, this is, this is so hard for you and me. You and I are more like Jimmy Stewart than we are like David. Because here... You and I are inclined to build what I call piles of self-esteem. See, we're pretty sure that the way you measure our life is by the size of our pile. See, here, here's how you know I love my kids more than you love your kids. Because my kids' toy boxes are overflowing. See, here's how you know that I'm more successful, better prepared, harder working than you. Because my TV's 52 inches, yours is only 40 Here's how you know God loves me more than he loves you. Have you seen the car I drove to church today? See, my husband, my husband's dedicated to me. Do you see the size of my ring? And we are so inclined by our human nature to measure ourselves and measure our success and measure who we are by the pile and how it compares. And how you know we do that is this. Find somebody whose pile's bigger than you. And look how deeply it rips your heart. See, this is strange, though. Because there was a moment, there was a moment in your life and my life that we knew, we knew that pile wasn't self-made. We knew that wasn't us. Remember the moment? It was when you and I were praying that they would accept the offer on the house. When we sat there on our knees and said, God, 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 please let the financing go through, please. And it went through. And what did we say? We said, thank you, thank you, thank you, God. And somewhere, somewhere be between signing the papers and moving the couch in, suddenly it became ours. 
Remember at work when everybody else was getting laid off? And you and I said, God, please, 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 let them pass us by. Please spare our job. And when the layoffs came and your name wasn't on the list, remember what we said? We said, God, thank you for providing for me. And now suddenly the paycheck is mine. Remember as a husband and a wife, when kids weren't happening, and we begged, we begged God on our knees, God, please, please, just one child. And now we have four, and we're pretty darn sure they're ours. Well, one of them we're not owning, but the rest of them are ours. You, you get what we do in this moment, right? You get what happens when you and I claim the pile. It, it's, like, it's like a child who goes and posts a sign on their room that says, Keep out my room. My son Josh pulled that once. Came walking down the hallway at the house. There was a sign on the door. Keep out Josh's room. With absolute love and grace. Can I tell you what I did? To which then, I politely said to my son, you will never put a sign like that up again. Because everything in that room, guess who bought it for you? <laughs> and yet you and I as believers walk up to the pile of stuff and we say, God, Keep out my stuff. It's a conversation God's been having with Abraham all his life. He's been having with you and me. There's a second moment in Abraham's life. And again, we're not going to turn there together, but it's in Genesis chapter 12. And you know, we gave you a challenge a couple weeks ago, said let's start reading through the Bible together, and if you start at the beginning, you're reading through these very stories that we're talking about together today. But it's Genesis chapter 12, and here's what happens. God begins to take some of the stuff back, and Abraham goes, hey, whoa, 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 Indian giver, what's that about? And scripture tells us in Genesis that there began to be a famine in the land, and Abraham's flocks are shrinking and he's having to spend his IRA on, you know, keeping things going and the arm on his tent just adjusted up and interest rates are going crazy and he's upside down. And finally in the midst of the famine, they're down to not a whole heck of a lot and Abraham and Sarah have to head down to Egypt to kind of ride it out and as they're going, Abraham filled with absolute anger, frustration. How dare God let the pink slip land on me? Says to Sarah, look, apparently it's up to you and I to save what little bit we got left, which ain't much. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to lie. I need you to tell these crummy Egyptians that 
you're my sister and not my wife, because here's what I'm fearing. I'm fearing they're going to see you because you are amazingly beautiful. They're going to kill me to get you. So just tell them you're my sister. To which I'm sure Sarah at some point said, Abraham, really? Yeah. God's already turned his back on us. God's already letting us down. So who cares if we break the rules? You and I have got to do whatever it takes to keep our stuff intact. So they get down to Egypt, and sure enough, they tell the story, Sarah's my sister. The Pharaoh, seeing, sister and, seeing Sarah and thinking she's pretty beautiful, takes her into his court, starts the preparation to marry Sarah. And it would have happened. It would have happened. Had it not been that God, the Bible says, brings a horrible disease upon the Egyptians. And as they go apparently to their soothsayers and their magicians to say, why is this happening? What's going on? It's revealed to them. Because you've got another man's wife in your court. You're fixing to marry her. And they realize it's Sarah. And they go back to Abraham. You ready for this? And the people who did not know God had more integrity than the people of God because the people of God were too busy being frustrated that God wanted some of it back. And Pharaoh says to Abraham, how in the world could you have lied to me? Do you realize what I almost did with your wife? Take your wife back and, you ready? Leave us because we can't afford you to be around. What happens in your heart? What happens in your heart when God takes a little bit back? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Unexpected bills have come and you're behind. You lose your job. You lose your job. What do you do when God starts messing with your stuff, being an Indian giver? Some of you say, well, no, 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 no. I, I get it. I get it. No, no. I, you know, it's the hand of God. I mean, you know, if, if God wanted some of it back, I, I'd consider that. You realize God has already laid this out for us, right? That, that God has already asked this question in our life. It's called the tithe can I just say to you out loud if you struggle with the tithe then you struggle with a God who might ask for some of it back because it's yours right it's mine and how dare God be an Indian giver I got a story that I've that I've told before, if you've heard it before, you're going to have to forgive me a little bit, but it's the moment. It, it's the moment we're talking about. My son Joshua's growing up, and any of you that have raised a boy know that there's this incredible moment in which boys begin to grow like a foot every day and a half. You know what I'm talking about? And the only way that you can fuel that growth is unspeakably huge volumes of food. Uh, enough food that you would swear that it would hurt a person you know, to have that much food in. 
And so we're going through that moment in Josh's life where he is averaging, I'm not kidding, guys, four and five Thanksgiving dinners a day, okay? Monstrous meals. And uh, we're driving down the road, and my son says to me, Dad, Dad, you got to pull in to McDonald's. I'm starving to death. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's working on meal number four. We pull up to the window. I say, son, you know, what's it going to take for you to survive the next couple hours? He says, you ready for this? Two double quarter pounder with cheese combos. Supersize me, please. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, that's a pound of meat. We pull up to the window. They're handing out bag after bag after bag after bag. I'm handing in dollar after dollar after dollar. My son's sitting in the seat next to me. And I made the mistake of reaching over for a French fry. To which my son said to me, hey! Don't you love that as parents, when, when moments like that come with your children, that God gives you exactly the right thing to say back? So I said back to Joshua, hey, back at ya. That's all that came to mind. I said, what are you doing? He goes, it's mine. And I go, who do you think just bought it for you? To which he said, oh. My son was forgetting a few things in that moment. He was forgetting to remember where his french fries came from. He was forgetting that if I had really, really wanted to, I could have pulled back into the lot and bought 10 more meals. He was forgetting he was going to be hungry at five. How often has God reached for a French fry? And your and my response was, hey, it's mine. And all I'm saying, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is if God reaches for a French fry, let him have them. So God invites Abraham to take a walk to have a conversation that's been 115 years in coming, to simply ask Abraham, do you get it? Do you understand that everything your hand touches, do you see, understand that everything you see, do you understand that all that you have has come from me? And the reality is ownership was never transferred. And if I ask, if I ask for all of it back. And so he says to Abraham, I need you to take the thing that you love more than your own life, the thing which is most precious to you. I want that. Because Abraham, I'll know an awful lot about you. 
as we take this walk. Verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, his son of promise, his son that he loved more than anything because God had asked. Because Abraham was done having the conversation. And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood and then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. He went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, you ready? The Lord will provide. You think he learned? And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord... It will be provided. Here's what I'm going to promise. Ready? We're going to push in. God is going to have this conversation, this conversation with every last one of us. And what you and I do, how you and I respond, is going to speak volumes to the heart of God. No, 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 God, 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 I provided this for myself. I did this. It's all my doing. I plowed the field. I went behind the mule. I harvested at the grain time. No, thank you very much. God, it's my job to keep it intact. And it's your job to keep your hands off. Or do I say, no, no, God, I get it. I get that everything I touch, I get that everything I see, I get that everything in my life, my car, my house, my children, is from you. And title never transferred. And if you asked for it back, you'd have every right. Ownership. Because here's the deal, guys. If God doesn't own your stuff, you know he doesn't own your life. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, this is not what we expected. And yet, if we're honest this morning, you've been asking for this conversation all our lives. You've been pointing to our cars and to our houses and to our children and to our jobs, and you've been asking who does that really belong to? And God, most of us have hung a sign on our stuff that says, God, keep out my room.
God, I pray that there'd be some of us in the room this morning who would just say, I'm done. Take me up the hill. Ask what you need to ask. Point at what you need to point at, God. Because I know the answer. The answer is this. It's yours. It has always been yours and simply on loan to me. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.